During this series, we are looking at different characters. And we are looking at the story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and the events leading up to it and after it through the eyes of different people present at the time. And so last week, we looked kind of through the eyes of Barabbas. And what does it look like and feel like and sound like to be the person who gets to walk off free while Jesus walks to the cross? And this Sunday, we're looking at this interaction. This interaction starts six days before the Passover. And Jesus came to Bethany, which was where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so Lazarus was a friend of Jesus, and he had passed. And Jesus returned to the city to raise him from the dead. And this had happened previously. And so to get up to speed on the timeline, we are less than a week from the time that Jesus would enter the trial and be taken to the cross. And today's story takes place the day before the triumphal entry into Uh, the city. And so he is in Bethany, and Bethany is where he raised Lazarus from the dead. There's a stir because that's a big deal, and the city knows it's a big deal. And Bethany is so close to Jerusalem that it's very full of people because all of these people travel for Passover to get to Jerusalem. And typically, when you would travel to go anywhere, you would stay with whoever you were connected to in that area. People had relatives in most cities, uh, family, heritage, kind of that space. And so they would come to travel to Jerusalem, but they wouldn't stay in Jerusalem if they had like mom and dad in Bethany or like someone that they knew that they could crash with and stay at their house. And so Bethany is full. It's crowded and there's lots of people there. And, and this is really just about a week before we get to where we talked about last week, which is that moment um, when there's a trial and Barabbas gets to walk off and Jesus goes to the cross. And so the crowd's really, really excited in Bethany about the Lazarus thing. They're still on this sort of like joyous uh, crowd excitement moment. And they're still very um, high on energy and love and excitement. And so Bethany is a happening place. And some of the crowd's response to Jesus having raised Lazarus from the dead would be some of what sets in motion the response to Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And some of what will set Jesus' trial into motion. But before we get there, it goes, Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. And the word used here for dinner is the word depnun. And it's a term that it can kind of refer to like any evening meal. Um, But what it is used for in scripture is fairly significant. And so it comes up three times in all of scripture. One, this dinner that Jesus is having with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And it's used twice in the context of the Last Supper. And so that leads us to believe that this dinner was significant. That this dinner was really important. Uh, And there was a very significant reason for this meal. We know there was a significant reason for the Last Supper, and now we know there's a significant reason for this dinner with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And some of what people have said and have studied is that this is also a dinner in preparation for the burial of Jesus. Mary and Martha and Lazarus are his friends. It looks a little bit different than the Last Supper, but it is important. 
The text goes on, Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This story probably sounds familiar to a few other stories. There's some question around if this story is a parallel or a retelling of the story of the woman who wiped Jesus' feet with her hair, and then the Pharisees kind of threw up a big stink about it, and it was kind of this really big deal. And, and, and there was some question in history around if these stories are the same story, and scholars have kind of been led to believe they're different stories, and they are two separate accounts. And then it also probably feels similar to the story of Mary and Martha. How many of you guys grew up hearing the story of Mary and Martha? Anybody in the room, how Martha worked and Mary sat? And we just know that story of Martha cleaned, Martha swept, Martha cooked, and Mary sat. Like, that is the story that we know that we have, like, internalized. And uh, Mary is praised for sitting at Jesus' feet. And Martha's like, ah, I guess I better sit down. Um, and so that's sort of like the other telling of this story. And that is this same story. But there's some fun facts around this. So we'll tangent for just a second. The story is accounted in Luke in the Mary Martha way. The way that we've heard it and kind of understood it is how Luke tells that story. And um, Luke um, felt like that was a really important part of the story, and, and John didn't feel like it was as important. And that doesn't mean that any one telling of the story is right uh, or wrong, but John is more focused on the response in this moment between Mary and Judas. He's more focused on Mary and Judas and how they responded in the space. But Luke is more focused on Mary and Martha and how they responded in the space. And, and it's a great testament to the fact that the disciples are different people. And they will share different stories. And they will watch what happens and then recount what happens differently because to them, what's important in that space is different because they're different people. And so for Luke, you'll see throughout his gospel, um, there's fewer details left out. He's sort of a storyteller guy. Um, he starts most of his sections of the gospel out with once upon a time. And if you've not heard once upon a time while reading the scripture, in scripture, it translates to so it was, which you have probably read if you've read through the gospels. But he was a storyteller. And his personality was all about the feelings of others. And he was paying attention to how other people felt constantly. He was making sure that they were being heard and understood, and so he tells the stories from the impact of how other people are feeling. And so for him, the Mary-Martha encounter was really important because there were deep feelings for other people involved. Would Jesus feel this way? Would he feel this way? Does Martha feel this way? Does Mary feel this way? Whose feelings are being represented and why? And for John, he was an emotively expressive guy, but in a different way. He was likable, but he wasn't the same storyteller. And he really, really cared about love and feelings like Luke did, but more about from his own perspective. And so the word love is used 27 times by John, but he is the only disciple who uses it four times to explain how Jesus feels about him. Which isn't bad, because we should feel that Jesus loves us. But Luke was really worried about how other people were feeling, and John is like, Jesus loves me. 
Like, this is great. And so on some level, this sort of is a picture or an idea of how we get to the Gospels and, and how people end up saying, well, this one must be wrong and this one must be right. And, oh, there's an error here because this account doesn't match this account. And then you just say, yeah, because they're different people. And what they remember and walk away with and what matters to them in the moment in terms of what should be retold or not retold is just going to be different on a basis of personality. The same is true as of all of us here. We will all walk away from this Sunday morning experience with a completely different takeaway. Completely different takeaway. That could be completely unrelated to anything that was planned and or happening in this space. And so the same is true for the disciples. They're all a part of the moments. But they're all walking away based on their personalities with a different take or a different idea of what's important or what happened or how it happened or uh, what they think matters the most. So that is helpful when reading through scripture and understanding the gospels from the disciples' accounts. So moving on, Mary takes perfume, not just any perfume. This perfume is worth 300 denarii or an entire year's wage for a hard-working, committed employee. And this is not to be confused at all with the fact that Mary is just rich, so like it doesn't mean anything to her. Mary was not rich. And this gesture is probably the most significant sacrifice that she's offered. So she takes the perfume and she anoints Jesus' feet. This moment reflects to the moment that Jesus washes the disciples' feet. It happens later. Anointing feet in Scripture is a servant's task. And those who truly understood the story of Jesus and how he came to be a servant, which was going to look so different than his triumphal entry where he was coming in to be king and, and people were celebrating him. Mary did this gesture as a way of saying, I know why you're here. It was also a custom at the time to anoint someone's feet in preparation for burial. This dinner, in some ways, was a preparation for burial. But where the story goes from here is also, for the people sitting there, as shocking and intense and crazy as it gets. Because to show someone your hair at this point in Scripture was incredibly frowned upon. It was a huge crime. Punishable, actually, as a woman to show your hair. And yet Mary wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. So now she has two sacrifices in this story. The perfume that's an entire year's wages. And then she wipes his feet with her hair. Mary's engaging with no hesitations. No regard for cultural appropriateness and what is okay or not okay in the moment. And she's gone beyond the realm of surrender to Jesus in expectations that anyone has ever heard of. One of the most impactful statements for me of the entire last year was a moment 
where I was at a conference and someone said this exact phrase, the thing about the American church is that it's traded surrender for commitment. We are really, really good at committing to things. We're really good at it all across our lives, not just in church. We're really good at commitment. We say, oh, we'll do kids ministry for three months. Or like, oh, we'll do this for six months. Or I'll give it a year and, and see what happens. Or the same is true for our financial means. We commit because it allows us to remain in control. With commitment, we have an end date. An option for opting out. An easy time we can reevaluate and go a different direction if we need to. An investment designed so that if it goes wrong or we can't quite meet it, then we're not stuck. We're committed, but we're still in control. And yet Jesus calls us to total surrender. Yet most of the time we trade it for a commitment. Mary's love for Jesus went far beyond a commitment would ever go. She could have given a percentage. She could have given a small amount. She could have washed Jesus' feet with a bowl of water, and it would still have the same resemblance of sacrifice. Just to wash his feet with water would be in and of itself a sacrifice as a servant. She could have just chosen to sit at his feet and listen. Instead, she surrendered her personal reputation and her entire year's wages to Jesus. So if we look at our life right now, and I, and I want us to pause for just a second. I want us to pause for just a second and answer the question, where have we traded surrender for commitment? Where have we traded surrender for commitment? Because I can tell you that I can think of a few spaces myself. I can think of a few places where I've chosen to make a commitment that allows me to remain in control. Or I can opt out whenever I need to opt out. I can change directions if I need to change directions. I can be reasonable and logical and I can remain committed, which looks good. And to other people, it's a sign of I've got this figured out. But have I traded surrender for commitment? Let's go on. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why hasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Somebody with a lot of money would have taken this and given you all that money, and then you could have done something with it. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Being wise is important, but never at the expense of surrender. See, Judas brings reason. He brings logic into the story. He says, hey, there's a way we can be compassionate and in control. There's a way we can love the poor and still have access to the money bag. 
But it turns out Judas had no intentions of being compassionate, only in control. And he's saying what he's saying in order to maintain that control and manipulate the space to make it look good while having full intentions of keeping it for himself. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. This is not ever an excuse to care about the poor, not care about the poor. People have tried to use it to say, see, we can just worship Jesus. We can just go to church, worship Jesus, and who cares what happens to the people who don't have food? If that's surprising to you, it really is a conversation that happens. But what Jesus is replying to here is the manipulation and the control that was being implied by Judas. This idea of using manipulation to say that you're serving the poor, but really just looking out for your own means and your own good. Judas was trying to show compassion while looking out only for himself. And yet Mary was lavishing her love on Jesus with no qualms about her reputation, no thoughts as to sort of the way it would look or how it would turn out or what it would seem like. She was simply lavishing all of her love on Jesus and taking the moment before he was to go to the cross, which she understood was about to happen, and just saying, Jesus, you are worth everything. You are worth everything. I want to invite the worship team back up. Mary is a picture of true surrender without need to remain in control. She surrendered her finances, her well-being, her reputation, her sense of being in control. And, and she's taken all of her love and she's poured it out on Jesus, both in her physical sense, her financial sense, her reputation, all of it. And she's just poured it out on Jesus. And, and Judas is this picture of someone who's, who's speaking well on behalf of the poor, but only looking out for himself. He has no actual regard for the poor. And yet there wouldn't be anyone in that room who wouldn't kind of look at what Judas was saying and be like, yeah, I mean, you could feed a lot of people with that money. Like, I, he's got a point. He's kind of doing something reasonable, and he's doing something logical, and he's being wise. This could be used for something else. And often we do that in the name of goodness. I can imagine that sometimes Judas' claim would be our claim. A way to be in control and yet look like we've committed to Jesus. We love to plan. We love to commit. Make wise decisions and be careful. And while there's a time and a place, whatever we think is good stewardship of our time, spiritual gifts, talents, and money should never be offered in place of total obedience and surrender to God. And I can tell you there have been many times 
where something obedient that Jesus has asked me to do does not match logic, reason, and what I would have considered as wisdom. Here we see lavish devotion, a space where Mary is honored for being willing to put her reputation on the line, for being willing to pour everything out in honor of Jesus, a space where she is not caring whatsoever what someone thinks about her in the space, where she's honored for pouring her love out on Jesus as a literal sacrifice, physically, emotionally, community-wide. And yet we struggle with what we look like when we come to the altar. Or will someone wonder why we're there? Our every thought, our every dream, our every piece of who we are and all that that costs us, we want to offer to Jesus. 